I have a few announcements to make. Uh, my name is Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of uh, the Helix Center, and I welcome everybody on uh, this dreary Saturday morning, but I promise you this will be anything but dreary. And uh, a few announcements about upcoming programs. On April 18th, uh, we're having a John Templeton Foundation-sponsored uh, roundtable on the mind of a child. On April 25th, another Templeton Foundation roundtable on the changing nature of free will. Then on May 2nd, Trauma and its After Effects, Part 1, War and Genocide. And uh, watch for announcements for our Helix Center benefit on May 8th at the Lotus Club. So now I'd like to do the introductions for today. To my right, Siri Hustved, the author of a book of poems reading to you, three books of essays, a work of nonfiction, the 2010 The Shaking Woman or A History of My Nerves, and six novels, including her 2003 What I Loved, shortlisted for the Prix Femina Etranger, and her most recent The Blazing World, longlisted for the 2014 Man Booker Prize and nominated for the Kirkus Prize. In 2012, she received the International uh, Gaboron Prize for Thought and Humanities. She has a PhD in English Literature from Columbia. She has also published papers in scientific journals, including neuropsychoanalysis and clinical neurophysiology. In 2014, she was appointed a lecturer in psychiatry at the DeWitt Wallace Institute for the History of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages, and Siri participated in the October 2013 Helix Center Symposium A.B. Warburg science and psychoanalysis. To her right is Alberto Manguel, Canadian writer, translator, editor, and critic, but would rather define himself as a reader, whose novels include News from a Foreign Country Came and All Men Are Liars, and nonfiction writings including The History of Reading, The Library at Night, and together with Gianni Guadalupe, The Dictionary of Imaginary Places. He has received numerous international awards, among them the Commander of the Order of Arts and Letters from France, and his Doctor Honoris Causa of the Universities of Liège in Belgium and Anglo-Ruskin in Cambridge, uh, United Kingdom. Just last month, he was a participant in the Helix Center Roundtable entitled Particle Fever, The Quest. And with today's roundtable, we celebrate publication by Yale University Press of Alberta's new book, Curiosity. To his right is Marie Howe, author of three volumes of poetry, The Kingdom of Ordinary The Good Thief, and What the Living Do. And she's the co-editor of a book of essays in the company of my solitude, American writing from the AIDS pandemic. She has been a fellow at the Bunting Institute at Radcliffe College and was, was a recipient of NEA and Guggenheim fellowships. Stanley Kunitz selected her for Laban Younger Poets Prize from the American Academy of Poets. And her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Poetry, Agni, Plowshares, Harvard Review, and the Partisan Review, among others. Marie is the 2012 to 2014 Poet Laureate of New York State. To her right is Paul Brody, psychiatrist and teaching faculty in the Department of Narrative Medicine at Columbia University, whose work explores space and the reciprocal relationship between listening and telling through the ethical stance of narrative therapy. He is co-creator and performer of Two Men Talking, a live, unscripted personal storytelling performance of identity, friendship, mortality, and forgiveness, which he has brought to hundreds of audiences internationally, including at the Edinburgh Festival, in major theaters in South Africa, on the West End of London, and off-Broadway. A TEDx talk entitled The Power of Two 
explores the methodology that informs the performance of Two Men Talking and his clinical work. As co-founder of the storytelling company Narrative, Paul has worked closely with Open Society Foundations, teaching advocacy through listening and personal storytelling, including international work with sex workers, people with intellectual disabilities, recipients of oral substitution therapy, Roma doctors, and AIDS activists. To his right, Edgar Chueri, professor of applied physics at Princeton, where he's director of Princeton's engineering physics program. He's director and chief scientist of Princeton's electric propulsion and plasma dynamic laboratory, where he's been working for more than two decades under NASA funding on developing advanced plasma rockets to propel human piloted to the moon, Mars, and beyond. So if there are any volunteers, we'll be taking your names later. He also heads Princeton's 3D audio and applied acoustics laboratory, where he has developed new virtual reality audio techniques for reproducing music in 3D. He's the recipient of honors and awards and was the subject of a recent profile by Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker. Edgar participated in the January Helix Center Roundtable on music and embodied cognition, and in last November's Synchronicity and Other Mind Matters. So I thought just to prompt uh, the conversation with an interrogative reading of the book's title, not a question about why the title Curiosity, but the recursive question, why curiosity? <laughs> Maybe I, I should start yeah. because, uh, um, because of the title of the book. Um, curiosity drove me to curiosity. I have always been conscious that questions uh, interest me much more than answers. And I think that my fondness from, for fiction comes from the fact that fiction, poetry, asks questions and is not interested or partly interested in, in the answers because answers have a tendency to become dogma. They, they belong to catechisms while uh, uh, questions lead to other questions, put our thoughts into words um, and continue to open doors. So that, that is, is the reason for the book. However, um, because uh, I, I have always felt that as, as a reader, I, I, I find my guides in, in literature, I decided before attempting this, this quest to be guided by uh, another uh, writer, poet, uh, character in his own fiction, um, and I chose Dante. I know it was presumptuous for me, <laughs> but I thought um, since Dante had no qualms in choosing uh, Virgil and Statius and St. Bernard and Beatrice as, as his guides, he would understand my, my need for uh, uh, a leader companion in, in the world of these questions. So the questions, um, I, I try to find them in the Commedia, and, and because you can find everything in the Commedia, you can, you can find the, these questions, whatever they are, and then take them 
uh, into different realms, uh, whether it's the question of why we divide our sexualities into two and uh, look onto Olympe de Gouges in, in the French Revolution, a character um, who is, is one of the marvelous secret characters of our histories, the woman who looks at the Declaration of the Rights of Man and says, what about the Declaration of the Rights of, of Woman? And is, of course, beheaded for that. <coughs> um, uh, Margaret Atwood said at one point that um, men are afraid that women will leave them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Um, so th th these are parts of the, of the realms that I, my questions took me to. Mm. Men do kill women a lot. <laughs> okay. yes. Quite a bit. Did you read the, the UN report this week that something like 43% uh, of the women in the world have been yes. hurt by a man, physically or sexually hurt by a man? Yep. Just had to mention it. Um, I just have to look at everybody because this is, I've never been here before. Can you hear me? Let me try. I have the, the hair, it sounds like a storm. Can you hear me now? No? Oh, get it higher maybe. Can you hear me now? No. <laughs> I think something's wrong with it. Here, just get that for you. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, good. All right. <laughs> it's quite a splash. Um, I've just never been here before, so I just want to look at you. It's strange to have people behind me. So hi, everybody behind me. Um, I just had to say that about men and women. Margaret Atwood's right. Sure. Um, I, I just want to introduce myself and say I feel a little daunted being here. Um, I'm, I'm just a poet, and poets don't know anything. <laughs> I want to make that perfectly clear. Dante um, was just a poet. Yes, I know. That's right. Um, but Perfect starting place for curiosity. I, I, yeah. So because I don't know anything, um, everything is worth a question. Rilke said a great thing about, we feel so, not, we don't feel at home in this world, really, us humans. You know, we, we're so uncomfortable. We have so much anxiety and fear. Um, but yet he suggested we're set down in this world as exactly the place for us to be. And part of what we, our job, our nature, is to feel our way around as, as a prisoner does in a darkened cell, you know, to try to understand the world we live in, <clears throat> to find out who we are, where we come from, where are we going, like these essential questions. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Um, you know, talking to Edgar, where are we going? The moon for a weekend, right? <laughs> um, but really, who, who are we? And, and what is our relationship to the rest of nature and, and to the soul and to beauty and to truth and to whatever we might think of as God? These have always been the questions of, of poetry, as you point out. Um, I don't know. I, I have thoughts about sort of 
So what's the urge, right? There is an urge that Marie just talked about to, uh, well, whether you're in a cell or, you know, take a dog on a car trip, right? You right. open up the door, the, car's, the dog's never been there before, and what does he or she do? Run out and start sniffing around. So there is, you know, Jak Panksepp, who's been here, has a whole neuroscientific theory about the seeking system, capital. S-E-E-K-I-N-G. Yeah, it's very, very uh, particular that they it be capitalized. But um, that said, this urge, which we see in infants mm -hmm. and, you know, the great exploring uh, uh, babies, you know, it starts just on your face, and then it as they become mobile, they move around the world. There's something profound about this movement outward that is not only about getting food or getting comfort, but seems to be about finding things out there. And if we extrapolate, I think you can probably take this urge, a drive, if you will, can be Freudian, a drive, and take it all the way up to the most abstract intellectual questions that concern us. He's careful to make a distinction between that seeking system and, and goal-oriented um, yes, uh, yes. endeavors. Yeah. It's, it's sort of akin to a kind of Emersonian uh, journey, not destination. Right, yeah. Which is very much what, your <coughs> books, too. Yeah. That's what art is. I mean, art is, yes. is goalless journey, you know? If you have a goal, there's no, you can, may as well give it up. Well, if you know what you're gonna do, why do it, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Many, many of my students say what I was trying to say was when they're trying to write a poem. And I'll suggest that they just give that up right away. Yeah. But. No, I'm, I was thinking as much as we were asked not to prepare for this, just having that word curiosity as the frame for my life over the last few weeks since I had the invitation. I've been dreaming about it. I've been thinking about it. I've been noticing curiosity in my life and what's the place of it. And I think that... For Curiosity has been, it's been a way of life. It's been a necessity for me, given the life that I've had. There have been choices to go into darkness and habitual stories or to choose curiosity. And I've come to think of it as a place that we can go. And as a psychiatrist, I've been thinking of late that what a lot of people struggle with, who I consult with, is the loss of curiosity. Yeah. People know the way that it is, and often the way that it is is dark, it's hopeless, there's no way out. So what I have, what I've seen my role as of late, through the, in the last few weeks, it's a new way of seeing myself, and I have a new way of seeing myself every few weeks, so that's <laughs> been a good one. But this has been how can I guide people to the place of reality with me? So can I lead people to that place? And the way that I do that is through how I listen. So it's very clear to me that we list, the way that we listen to one another shapes, shape each other. And so I'm very curious about the role of listening and the effect of listening on one another. Well, as I listen to you, um, I... Uh, first realized that I did not get the email about not preparing. So as a, as a token research scientist, I felt that I have a duty to find out what research has done on 
so, um, on curiosity from a scientific point of view. And let me first start by saying I have zero credentials in those fields. I'm a physical scientist. But um, I learned, and I'm, I was going to report to you what I learned and caricature it in some way, that um, there are neuroscientists who study curiosity from a mechanistic level. At lunch, we were talking about the, uh, the, the uh, problems of doing so and, and challenges and how futile it is to describe these complex phenomena mechanistically. Nonetheless, they point out to um, specific release of uh, dopamine in the brain, in some areas of the brain, as you were talking, S-E-E-K, um, particular novel information. And it's actually a pleasure. It might not be, as you said, uh, what did you say? Uh, it, but it's it, not goal-oriented. It's not goal-oriented, but it's pleasure-oriented. Yes, and the word pleasure is um, yes, it's a, Actually, I use the word pleasure. And it turns out the word pleasure, and that's when I'm going to argue that, and the word novelty come out uh, a lot, both from the scientific research, ironically, but also in many discussions of curiosity. Well, to illustrate what I mean by, by novelty and pleasure, first novelty. Um, imagine we live in a world where there are no seasons, okay? So there continuous spring. You, you pick whatever your favorite season is, this fall. And then suddenly, we all experience seasons for the first time. We see winter with snow. And suddenly, everybody's talking about it. And then everybody wants to know what is the reason for the seasons. And some scientists will figure it out. By the way, it's a very, very simple reason. And taxi cab drivers can explain to you what the seasons are. However, today, speaking of lack of curiosity, I do not want to put anybody on the spot, but I guarantee you, as a professor, if I give all of you here, and I'm sure there are many wonderfully, everybody's wonderfully educated, you'll be surprised how many people among any collection of highly educated people can explain how, what the seasons are, why there's a winter. Mm -hmm. So there's complete lack of curiosity about <laughs> daylight and light. We don't know. Most of us do not know what, what, why well, there's winter. In the morning, we open the fridge, we pick up something, close the fridge. I guarantee you 99% of the highly educated people have no idea how the fridge works. Now, if you, if you face them with that lack of curiosity, they'll claim, oh, it's too complicated. But I guarantee you that anybody can teach you how the fridge works in exactly right. two minutes. Right. And if you, uh, when you put alcohol on your hand and it evaporates, it feels cold. However, we go about life, opening the fridge, closing it millions of times in our life, have no idea how it works. However, for the first time you wake up in the morning and see a fridge in your house, open it, you might be curious about it, you might go check. So the fact that novelty somehow plays a big role. The second thing is uh, pleasure. Apparently pleasure uh, is, is tremendous. And I try to find people quotes, and almost every quote I could find refers to pleasure. And before I close, I want to read you the opening passage of, uh, uh, of Alberto's book, which hints directly at pleasure and novelty uh, in, in experiencing curiosity. So Alberto starts his book with this little story. One day, when I was eight or nine in Buenos Aires, I lost my way uh, coming from class. The school was one of many that I attended in my childhood and stood a short distance from our house in the tree-lined neighborhood of Belgrano. I'm skipping a few lines. After a few blocks, I realized I didn't know the way. I was too ashamed to ask for directions, so I wandered more astonished than frightened. For what seemed to me a very long time, 
I don't know why I did what I did, except that I wanted to experience something new. So underline the word new. To follow whatever clues I might find to mysteries not yet apparent, as in the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I had just discovered. Quote, the world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes, said the master. I remember becoming aware with a feeling of pleasurable anxiety that I was engaging in an adventure different from the one on my shelves. And yet I, ex I experienced something of the same suspense, the same intense desire to find out why, what lay ahead without being able, without wanting to foretell what, may, what might take place. But nothing happened. At long last, I turned a corner and found myself on familiar ground. When I finally saw my house, it felt like a disappointment. <laughs> so the, the moral of the story is somehow pleasure and novelty come. So I want to go back to a question to you. You mentioned that poetry and fiction do not necessarily answer a question, but they deal directly with curiosity. I come from we do try to answer questions, and, um, and curiosity plays a big role. And I'm fascinated about the, uh, the role of curiosity in each. Somehow it's common, but this practice is quite different. It, yes, I, but I was unfair to, to essays because you can find, of course, in any kind of writing uh, uh, the questions that are so exciting. Um, the, when you when you mention novelty, um, I distrust novelty because it's it's seductive in the moment that it appears, and then it immediately loses its seduction. There is a wonderful novel by Thomas Love Peacock, Crotchet Castle where um, the owner of uh, a mansion is showing the grounds to a friend, and he's very proud that um, when you turn a corner, you're surprised by a folly that he has constructed there. And he says to his friend, this is what I call the element of surprise. And his friend says, and what do you call that element the second time that you go? <laughs> Um, curiosity, as, uh, uh, as Robert was saying, I think is, is in, in every area a much rounder impulse. Um, Siri mentioned this, uh, this drive, this, this need. I think it has to do with our uh, consciousness of being alive in the world. Um, English is a very rich language, except when it comes to the verb to be. Mm. Yeah. In, in, in Spanish or in Italian, you, you, you have the difference between to exist yes. and, and, and to be in a certain place, ser y estar. So, so, uh, Hamlet's question doesn't hold. You have to, you have to choose. Um, the fact that we know that we exist, I think, leads to the question of um, 
where we are, uh, the second part of the verb to be, um, and then reflects back on the question of who we are and where we are and who we are um, appear um, as in a corridor of questioning mirrors. Uh, you never come to a real answer, but uh, you progress in the quality of the questioning. Maybe the difference between physics, I mean, we were talking about this at lunch, that there, you really can, in physics, arrive at a kind of con conclusion, which then is carried along in theoretical physics you know, as it, as it develops. But at the same time, there is no theory of everything yet, right? So there are nevertheless holes in the pattern. And, uh, you know, listen, I'm not a physicist. I'm just looking from the outside. The difference, I think, in the arts is that um, you never get there. I mean, Dante gets there, of course, in the Commedia, um, and you talk about that. There, he, he it's the end he of language. It's the end of language. <laughs> it's the end of language. Um, but it, it is, this question, which ties together, I think, uh, uh, from a, a psychiatric point of view, and maybe even a mammalian point of view, why is it that some people are so much more curious than others? What is this actually about? I am endlessly curious and I am never bored. But when I was um, a volunteer writing teacher in a psychiatric hospital, Payne Whitney, right here, for four years, it wasn't the psychotic patients, and I had some really psychotic patients who were hard to work with, was the depressed patients. People with clinical depression, are profoundly uncurious. And the big effort was to instill some curiosity about what's going on. And listen, I don't have the answer to this question, <laughs> as usual, but, but it opens up a way to start thinking about what are we dealing with here? This, you know, Siri, we yeah. talked about this at lunch. You know, one aspect is fear yes. and courage. Well, I was struck by your story as the boy because as I have been terrified oh. to be lost. Um, and there's reasons for that. For girls to be lost. Um, but also, I was just a frightened child, you know. But to, to, I've noticed, at least in my writing students, that what keeps them from being curious about what they've just written, for example, is often fear. That they think there's nothing else. Like they got that line out, and that's good enough, and then they can't question it or wonder about it or wonder about the next thing. It limits, it limits all of us when we're afraid, when we're anxious. Or, or fear can also drive your curiosity. How so? Uh, well, um, in Bluebeard, um, <laughs> the, it's the fear that drives the bride to open that yes. door. Yes. Um, it's a different curiosity from Little Red Riding Hood, who, um, who goes off the path because she wants to pick the flowers. Um, but, uh, but in many of the stories, 
um, it is fear that drives the curiosity of finding what has been forbidden, and so you you go beyond the edge of the world, like Ulysses, uh, to experience that which has been forbidden with fear, of course. Yeah. Well, the the nature of narrative suspense is, of course, to be in abeyance, and right. this drives curiosity. Very simply, a detective novel. Yeah. Right. You're you're hanging, and you want to get there to the end. Yeah, but as a questioner, it's not fear that drives me necessarily. No. I mean, and I'm thinking now about what you were saying about listening. Yeah. And what, how does that help someone, for example, in a depressed state, become less afraid or less shut in? You know, how does Well, that I think, I, I agree with you. Depression is one of the hardest states to be with with another yeah. person. And for me, it's where the communal view of human beings has to come in. Yes. So if you have no hope and you are shut down, can I have hope for you? Yeah. And can I be curious for you until you're able to have it again? And can I sit and just be with you? And it's, it's an ongoing practice to, just, yeah. to be able to do that. You know, I'm just, I can't help thinking of last year, I, I put myself through an experience because I became aware of how afraid I am. Actually, you'd have to say was, because I'm less afraid since the experience. And I decided to confront my deepest fear. It wasn't pleasurable. There was no, but there must have been at some level. Not looking forward to it. I was terrified. I was to go and spend um, several nights alone in a canyon in Utah with no food, just water. For me, this was an unthinkable thing to do. I, I, have, I have trouble staying alone at night in a house. Um, with, I grew up in South Africa, a lot of fear. But I did it, and I, I went with a particular group of people that organize these things, and you go in a group, and then you go off on your own, and you recreate what Native Americans called a vision quest. Oh, yeah. But you sit in one place, and it was four days. And... I, I was all very well, oh curious, God. enjoying myself <laughs> until the very first night when suddenly, alone, the sun was setting and I faced that terror and I watched the mind. I watched my mind and I wasn't curious in that moment. I wanted yeah. to get the hell out of there <laughs> and just run home, but the, I couldn't. I'd hiked up a river to get what, there. What, where was everybody else? They had all gone off on their own. It was a huge canyon. It was like. No, there was no one around. That was the point, <laughs> is that I was alone. And I was lost. So, because there was nowhere to be other than where you were, and so it was Did the experience. Did they come and pick you up then, at the end? No, once a day, you would leave a stone on a pile. You'd go and walk to a pile, leave a stone, a stone pile with a buddy, who was at least 10 or 15 minutes away oh from you. Oh my God, it's like Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> you see there your mind is going you're going to get eaten all these Not things so, but what I, what I saw was I befriended fear oh. I actually was able I, I talked out loud and I asked fear to join me I actually asked, invite, realized that what I was really afraid of was death that ultimately I was afraid of, of dying I saw psychotic killers coming to kill me lions, bears, whatever <laughs> Um, and I eventually just said, Death, come and sit with me. 
just let's mm -hmm. sit together. Mm -hmm. I'm sick of being stalked by you. Join me. And it helped. And by the third day, by the third night, I lay outside. I watched the sun set. I watched the moon rise. I watched the stars. Something had shifted for me in my relationship with that. Um, and the, and that was curious. Then now I'm curious now, about the experience. I, I have the, a, a funny question, but it's it's quite Go personal. Ahead. Could you read? Yeah, that's what I would. You think. are not allowed to bring books. <laughs> so you were just there. You could write. Anywhere. You could write, and <laughs> I filled a journal, but not no oh, reading. Oh, you wrote. You wrote though. You are allowed to bring okay, a book. Okay, you can oh, you write. Could, but right. no okay. reading, and yes, I recited. I learned yourself. poems off by heart before I went, you can read so that I could recite them, but I never got <laughs> no to it. Food. No food. What did you do for eating? You said water. That's it. Oh my God. You didn't pick some berries? No, I, well, the, the, I won't go into it in too much detail, but I actually was so panicked about the no food that I cheated and brought food oh, with okay. me and made up a whole reason why I needed to have food. Yeah. And I, I had it, but I kept it in a tree oh. and oh. ended up. How honorable. <laughs> but, but to go that, back to fear, I mean, yeah. it seems to me fear gets a bad rap, but. Fear is central to many of these mechanisms under different names. I mean, fear has a lot of bad connotations. But uh, the, the instinct of survival, which goes back to the dogs that you mentioned in Syria when they entered that yeah. room. Yeah. I lived with a cat. Whenever I brought an object to the house, to I'm sure you. you put a little bag. She would come in. You. Oh, sorry. She would come in in the room and directly go to that bag for a few seconds, sniff it. Yeah. <laughs> sniff it and uh, test. Help and uh, within a few seconds, when on, yeah. <laughs> she would lose her curiosity. And after reading, sorry. So, it's better? All right. So basically, I would, yeah. just to summarize what I was saying, I'm trying to argue that it does play a central role, maybe not under the name fear exactly, but the instant of survival, which is also linked to pleasure. Um, the dogs that Siri mentioned, sniff right away when they enter a room. Um, the cat I lived with would do the same thing when I brought a new object. It could be a bag of mysterious yeah. bag or even yeah. something inanimate. She would come right away, notice there was something new, which is a novelty part, go smell it, sniff it, check it out, logs it in. Kids do that, by the way, and immediately lose curiosity. And there will be some mechanism which some neuroscientists uh, attribute to some release of uh, you know, a chemical. Uh, dopamine or whatever, and there's a sense of satisfaction that you obtained that new information that you seeked. But it's somewhat related to the fear of dying. It's, this is a mechanism of defense. So, so it seems to be the pleasure, novelty, fear of dying, or, or somewhat, and curiosity are somewhat and, related. And, um, yeah. a, a, an exchange, like uh, when you ask death to sit with you, yeah and uh, your cat gets to know the thing that it fears and becomes then um, uh, acquainted with it and no longer fears it. And I, I think that it's, um, it, it, it's a pact that perhaps we, we make with the thing we fear in order to say, well, now show your face. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful poem by Louise Bogan uh, about uh, her confronting a fierce white horse that arrives and it, yeah. she feels the fear that it, it's going to hurt her. And a voice says, 
give it some love. And then out of the fear, she gives it a glove. And the horse lies down and puts its head on her uh, lap. Um, it, it doesn't answer the question of what the horse is or why does she fear it, but it allows for a relationship with the thing you fear in order to engage in a dialogue that allows you to lead to a question. This seems very crucial now in our country, given the circumstances that are arising from racial conflict. And, uh, you know, I was I'm so impressed with your story. I'm just so moved by your story. Um, I, I grew up within a violent house, and so I have a lot of fears. Um, many of them are, have gone away, but we were talking about how psychoanalysis um, helps you to change your story and how much fear freezes a story so yeah. that the story cannot change. Right. The story cannot change. So one of the things I'm afraid of is the subway because it's a locked room with people I don't know in it, and so I'm afraid of violence in it. Um, but today, I took the subway because I'm trying to get over this fear. And I had so, and I became curious. Well, I, what, what had happened was I confronted the frozen story um, and then was surprised by it. And I'm embarrassed to tell the story, so I'll tell it. Um, <laughs> so I got on the subway. I, I tried to get on an empty-ish car so I won't feel so claustrophobic. And there was a big, very big man with dark skin I saw. And I'm like, oh, he's scary. But then somehow, because my natural white person racism came right up, you know, big black guy, he's scary. I'm admitting this. I get on the car and I see that the man has a sleeping child in his arms, right? Story changes. Not so scary. Not so scary, <laughs> sleeping child in his arms. Beautiful face, right? The person I first saw was never there. There's that man. Then a woman gets on and she says, I'm homeless, I need money. Everybody bows their heads. And I see another person of color in a hood, you know, the famous hood. And I take out some money and I walk over to her and he, he's also taking out money to give her money. So there's two surprises, right? I'm thinking of all the people on this car, certainly this guy's not going to give her money and he does. And the guy who looked like he was never going to speak to her ended up speaking to her. What I'm trying to say is I realized in that five-minute ride all the stories I carry that are not true, that, that run any instant and freeze me um, and freeze the world. You know, the world goes dead. Um, and then all of a sudden, when I got on the darn car, the world became animate and alive and surprising. And everybody acted completely differently, including myself, from, from what I imagined. But I, I think this is really interesting because it's possible then to start thinking about uh, curiosity as a dynamic mm -hmm. process that facilitates movement of all kinds. Yes. I mean, the cat, and then, you know, once this is mastered, I mean, there's also an aspect of curiosity that has to do with mastery and then withdrawal and returning 
to another, as you said, always the next question is generated, at least in my case. But there is something about mastery too. We can formulate a test, like a, call it CQ, curiosity quotient, like an IQ, <laughs> where, where, where you can rank yes. people. Yeah, that would uh, be you, great. you were mentioning that. I have a, a, a very rough version of it, which I did at lunch today. I, uh, when people know that I work on uh, space travel, I give them this test and I tell them, would, would, you, you, go? If, would you go to spend a weekend on the moon if it can be done? in a weekend, or a week, a week. Yeah. or a week, because weekends, so people really worry about their, their cats, you know, at home. <laughs> but uh, I, have, I have a wonderful answer today from Mary. She said, yes, if there's enough uh, Xanax. If I had enough Xanax. That's right. <laughs> Just for the flight. <laughs> That's right. When Just you get for the flight. Just for the flight. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, but uh, why do people, why are, not only why yeah. people, why are, we are, why are we often turbulent curious? Why do we open that fridge and close it and not bother to, to just Google how do things work or ask somebody, want to know, how can we go about life well, experiencing daylight and a lot of, not only I'm talking about material things or things in general, but ideas and not question them. But it's interesting because sometimes ideas can limit curiosity. Right. So Absolutely. one of the things that I see as a therapist, mm -hmm. and I've been, I was trained as a psychiatrist, and when I was doing my training, we were very, it was Freudian analytic teaching. Halfway through my residency, I remember distinctly the professor of psychiatry standing up and giving a lecture to the whole program saying, that's no longer true. Biological model. It became biological overnight. And then I discovered narrative therapy, which is another completely different view of how the human being works. And what I find is that if I'm really curious about the person sitting in front of me, those theories get in the way. And psychiatric diagnosis can really get in the yes. way because it's very limiting. It's, yes. got, it's a whole narrative on its own. So if you sit and make a diagnosis of someone has depression, what you go along with is all the things we're saying about people with depression, That's but that right. doesn't give room for those outlying moments that are not necessarily characteristic. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, one of the reasons to read medical history is simply to understand how the categories shift over time. I mean, just the, I mean, this is a wonderful way to loosen up your uh, sensibility. Right. And um, I, I absolutely agree. And my new theory is that there isn't a single theoretical model that can <laughs> encompass any question, not one. And that what you have to do is take multiple theoretical models, look at the same bit of business. You will not get a single answer. You will get multiple answers that will provide you with what I call focused zones of ambiguity. <laughs> and this may be the best we can do, but that is not so bad. Um, and so that, you know, a lot of questions, not necessarily questions in physics, but a lot of questions involve a prismatic reality which cannot be caught from a single perspective. But Edgar, do, do scientists work in that way too? Well, or do you have, a, you have an idea towards which you go? No, doubting and skepticism are, have a very important role in scientific discovery. First, I want to tell you that one of my heroes will agree 100% with you about the uh, danger of 
formalism to curiosity. Albert Einstein once said, it's a miracle that curiosity can survive formal education, which is, a, which is remarkable. And, um, True that. Yeah, yes. Um, but, but in general, in scientific, doubting is very important. We, we teach kids to be skeptic. Um, Dante, I mean, um, Alberto quotes Montaigne. I'm going to quote Alberto quoting Montaigne, quoting Dante, saying that uh, only, you know, uh, he loves knowledge, he lo but he puts, he put, I'm paraphrasing, he, he puts doubting just right there next to knowledge. So uh, knowing and doubting are essential part of uh, seeking knowledge. The ambiguity is part of discovery. And, uh, but there is something when you kill the ambiguity, which happens more often in science than in the poem, you transcend it, it becomes boring, I have to admit. We rarely ever pick up a paper written and read it. Uh, he was a genius, so it was Einstein. Rarely my students pick up Einstein's paper. We use his theories every day. So there is something that can killed when, and uh, you mentioned that uh, you defended, well you actually, you attacked uh, implicitly the notion of uh, novelty. Um, I want to defend it a little bit by saying that novelty is essential to some extent, but it gets redefined. I mean, if you read a boring text, it stops um, as novelty dies, and it curiosity will but Not you necessarily. It might become deeper. Just not uh, about the superficial surprise. Well, I said a yeah. boring text. Yeah. But if you read uh, the Divine Comedy, you can spend your lifetime rediscovering it, and therefore the novelty is always there. So, so yeah. I, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's new every time I, I read it. I think there's a little bit of a language problem because I, the, the novelty idea, I mean, there are people now who are, are talking about the brain as a predictive or, you know, organ that basically uses expectation, um, the patterns of expectation established in the past, and that we often see the world through those expectations, and it's only novelty that jars us into uh, seeing, well, new, in a way. I mean, and, and of prejudices you were talking about, our prejudices and typecasting arise from those predictable patterns of expectation, and not failing at times to recognize the novel, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thing that that, that pops out and is different, and when that novelty pops out, we have to investigate it, you know, or we're very depressed and we don't want to go over and sniff the thing, right, the, the new object. But, um, yeah, I think there's a way to look at novelty as, you know, you're looking at it, the word from this, a very literary position, which mm -hmm. I appreciate, and you're looking at it from a more scientific uh, uh, perspective. I, sorry, no. I, I, I would say that um, the idea of novelty, either in science or in 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 art, let's let's take those those two traditional um, fields, um, it seems to me misleading because I have the suspicion that whatever is new is never really new because if it were completely new we, we wouldn't see it. it we wouldn't yes. recognize it it would we be unrecognizable the, that, yeah. that's right so um 
the idea of novelty, I, I like this. A relative novelty. I mean, I think the curiosity as defined in the dictionary is something to the extent uh, seeking, uh, the urge to seek new information, seek yeah. new information. I'm not saying this is a great definition, but there's always, in, even in, uh, in, in these uh, mechanistic uh, neuroscientific models of curiosity, there's always uh, an emphasis on the fact that there's a f some kind of first encounter uh, with an object. So in other words, boredom, which is something I want to inject in the conversation here, uh, seems to be a, 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 yeah. a place in the opposite role. We get bored, we, less, we become less curious about something. So what happens, it must be related. If, uh, if boredom kills our uh, wanting to seek. I don't understand it, boredom. Um, I don't I, uh, the, the, the field that, that includes boredom, depression, melancholy um, can be also very creative because if traditionally you, you look at the discussions on, on, on melancholy as a state in which the artist creates, it's a curiosity driven inwards. Mm -hmm. um, so you are not looking to ask questions about the new, but you are driven to ask questions about the old, because that will always f continue to feed you in a different state. Now, the question is, and I don't know whether uh, I I I people who suffer uh, of depression are cut off any communication or just towards the outside world, do they continue to ask questions or is uh, the dialogue with the world interrupted? Well, I'm I, sure we could answer that. There's enough people in this room who've experienced depression, right? But I don't know if we could answer it as one unified answer. So I think right. that the whole thing yeah. is that when we start saying people who are depressed are anything, right. that becomes yeah. a right. dominant narrative. Right. Right. Yeah. And then people feel, often actually feel obliged to stick to the narrative. Yeah. That's right, like your man yeah. in the hoodie. Yeah. Yes. I mean, what is someone who's depressed? I mean, how many, yes. I, I, mean, I mean, a number of us would raise our hands and every one of those, our experiences would have been different. But what I want to interject into this conversation is the word imagination. Yes. Um, I keep thinking of Blake, you know, what is now proved was once only imagined, that the imagination is isness, you know, God, whatever. You know, what, what, it, what part does the imagination play in curiosity? What is the reality of imagination in scientific work? Um, was, of course, it's central, but uh, in, in, the mechanis in, the, uh, uh, in the drive behind the curious, the, it cannot, it cannot not, not play the cat uh, who is that is uh, storing that, that bag or that new object uh, might not be indulging a lot of imagination, imagining a threat, which is yeah. not really a very deep imaginative thing. Um, so to, to some level, curiosity in my mind is a plays a different role than imagination. But in, in scientific inquiry, they're both essential and they could be related. I, I, I think they're related in the sense that what is the imagination, right? I mean, what is the, the point of it? It's probably to project oneself into the future, right? And that this is 
probably deeply related to curiosity and asking the next question. Because if you're unable to project yourself into the into another place. So there's a certain dynamic relationship, if you will, between curiosity and the imagination because it, it is a, a, a road, a trip, yes. a voyage. Robert used the word quest on another panel, yes. which I find yes. so useful, this, this traveling towards something. You may not know what you want to find, but in that traveling, you continue to be curious. And it's probably uh, deeply related to the construction of narratives, right? To, to, that that these, these patterns become organized and then projected. And that's, you know, you can't have imagination if you don't have memory. And also in the neuroscience on curiosity, um, it seems one little interesting tidbit is that the hippocampus is activated and that the state of curiosity, and this is probably dopamine is involved as well, a kind of a, you know, a high thing, that it seems to consolidate memory of the thing you found out. And for readers, this is terribly interesting to me. I forget a lot of things. I have a tendency not to forget what I read. I don't know how I remember it. I, I think I remember it because I'm so damned interested, and it sticks. But don't you find you remember what you read, you edit it in your mind, you oh. extend it, you improve it. You... I don't remember word for word. No, but what I mean is, is, is <laughs> more than word for word. It's changing your memory and swearing that uh, Madame Bovary didn't commit suicide. Not quite that dramatic, but definitely in that realm. Yes, I have misremembered books. Yeah. The question is that why we remember what, we, when do we remember things very well? It's a very important neuroscientific question, and it is related to fear and dopamine creation, and and also what we experience during creativity. Apparently, uh, people have shown that uh, well, that's not never 100% consensus, but for a while there were theories of learning were based on enhancing dopamine creation. For example, there's a professor at Brown yeah. who was teaching French, and I saw him one time in a little film. He had six students in his office. He, um, he wanted to go over the vocabulary he had last week, and he said, uh, okay, let's go over, what is uh, the word uh, for egg in French? Uh, he asked one student, and the student said, uh, and then he took an egg from his pocket, and he said, it's oof, and broke it on the head of the student, <laughs> and had egg. Now, you can bet for the rest of the life of the student, you will never, never forget oof. And the question is why, and apparently, yeah. there, when you fear, and when you experience pleasure also, and reading can be a tremendous amount, of, there is a release of some, according to some neuroscientists, these uh, high-like you know, substances that will give you a high. And, um, in, entrench things in your memory. Yeah. I wonder how he taught after. <laughs> Justice. Or, 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 or a hammer. I want to ask you something about what you just said, Siri, because we were talking about uh, earlier about composition and how the best times writing are when something's writing through you. That there's not, there's that strange, people are nodding, you know, there's yeah. that, that strange exhilaration of it all. Right. But being there enough to write down what something else wants to say. Yeah, and I mean, the, you know, it's the experience of uh, 
taking dictation. Yeah. Old, yeah. old uh, notion, and it's Dante something used Dante it. <laughs> used it. Um, and there, and, and Blake. And that's, uh, yeah, Blake, absolutely. I, I think these are, you know, I think there is actually some kind of mechanistic uh, way of thinking about this. I think these <laughs> have to do with very old um, bodily and emotional patterns that are established pre-linguistically. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they are resting on one's ability to write and all the experience one has had writing yes. and all the other writers that have been feeding you for years and years and years, but that in a state of relaxation and openness, these patterns... Uh, repeat themselves. It's it's a very rhythmic experience. It's and, physically rhythmic. Yes. And I and it's dialogical. And I think it's rooted in our very early relations with the other. You know. Well, well what you oh, excuse me. Yeah, just sorry. just what you said a minute ago was when you when you write when you arrive. Let's say when you find such sentences coming out of you or lines or whatever. You said you referred to you said then then some other animal part of yourself or old part of yourself recognizes it. You said I think that I think you know I've said this a number of times about for me writing fiction is about truths, not literal truths. Yeah. And when you hit it, you know, when you see it on the page, mm -hmm. it's answered yeah, yeah. by something inside you that's very old. Mm -hmm. It's a gut feeling. Now I have to use my Einstein quote. Because when Jacques Hadebach asked Einstein how he worked, he answered, this is not a direct quote, he answered in a very beautiful way. He said, none of my work has anything to do with signs, mm -hmm. either mathematical or linguistic. My work is visual, muscular, and emotional. Yeah. Many, many physicists think it's visually. It's beautiful. Yes, mm -hmm. very yes. much so. And Niels Bohr, you know, when he was coming on his, his atoms, mm -hmm. had a very Dickensian image of plum puddings with mm -hmm. bouncing <laughs> raisins. <laughs> <laughs> I when we teach quantum mechanics today of the atom, we start by Bohr's model because it's, it's which is, which yeah. But it's completely visual and leads you to the right place yeah. eventually. But that brings me to, I proposed a while ago to start, uh, see if we can formulate a Q, QC, uh, okay. uh, <laughs> and a CQ, curiosity quotient. <laughs> curiosity quotient. Curiosity quotient. Curiosity quotient. Basically, where, how curious people are. Yes. But I, I want to propose now if we can come up with a scale where we can rank activities that we do on which, which of them is more inducive to curiosity. Okay. Now, we can all agree that drinking a glass of water ranks low on that uh, curiosity uh, scale, uh, uh, CS, to some know. extent. Every, every example you will give will, will have. come <laughs> with, up with the But the one that puzzles me the most is, yeah. uh, I want to bring it up because we have an expert here on it, is the one of reading. And Alberto made a career of uh, uh, saying wonderful things about reading. So you, you quote in this book um, that... Uh, the entire Commedia can be seen as the quest of one man's curiosity, which is Dante's. Uh, that's fine, I see that perfectly, it's incredible, incredibly uh, true and clear. But what about reading? Now I'm talking about reading 
purely f uh, in fic fi fiction, which is uh, a pleasure, number one, um, it doesn't require, on the surface, a, an act of curiosity except submitting to the act of curiosity of the author. Um, how I, come? I, I wouldn't agree. Well, actually, I'm, I wanted yeah, to yeah, say okay. that. I'm, I'm leading you to say that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, accusing. I'm, I'm, ta <laughs> I'm taking a reading which is the least, uh, which uh, reading fiction, not reading a, a book on nonfiction, which by definition you're curious about a topic. But if you pick a pick a, bo a book uh, that's purely a novel, and read it, uh, to what extent? You are curious. Why would you rank this activity as high on the uh, uh, CS, curiosity you, scale? <laughs> if you start reading in a place of La Mancha, wh whose name I don't want to remember, mm -hmm. immediately you want to say, why? Mm -hmm. What is this place? What happens there? And you're constantly curious if the writing is good. If you turn the page, I'm not curious, curious yeah. when I read Dan Brown. Mm -hmm. But I am curious when I read Cervantes and Dante. I guess the, the, the turning of the page is a measure that you know, right? Absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah. What you, you want to know. I actually have another quote from a, a lesser writer, Mickey Spillane. Oh, yes. Um, but I was there, and he said, this is a person, nobody reads a book to get to the middle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Any novelist who does not listen to that advice is lost. But I mean, you know, that, so you're talking about what I'm interested in is how do you <coughs> generate curiosity? So you said something at the very outset of this which really interests me. You said, I don't know what boredom is. Yeah. So there's something that you know that is really important when it comes to curiosity. It's a knowledge you have about how not to get bored. And how do you generate how do you generate interest life as it's happening? So we could be curious right now about this very moment. If we're not, then we're not doing our job. Right. So and so I'm really interested in how we do that. And as writers, you generate curiosity for the reader. The reader has to meet you, read, but you're doing something to lead them into that place, would you say? Most of us aren't even here, right? Most of the time, we're somewhere else. We're, we're in the past, or we're we're <laughs> yeah. thinking about something. Yeah. Um, so to actually to actually be here is already a radical receptivity to what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, I try to do, and I ask my students to do, is just to do that to be practice here. being here. Yeah, to actually, I have them write like 10 observations a week and they run and they keep looking for something to write about. And one of the greatest stories, they're like, I, I can't do this. I said, just tell me something you saw on the way here. And by the way to my office, and this young woman said, I saw a puddle. And I said, okay, tell me about the puddle. And she said, well, there was a piece of paper in it. And I said, what was on the piece of paper? She said, I don't know. I said, where's the puddle? She said, right out there. I said, go look. <laughs> she went and she looked, and it was someone's term paper on the meaning of life. <laughs> floating in the puddle. In the puddle. <laughs> no, but, but this is actually, this brings us, though, to, I think it brings us to phenomenology. Right. And I once wrote an essay on Mirandi, the Italian artist, who 
It's really, I, I mean, I went to review, review a show in Venice, and it was beautiful late Mirandi. And while I was there, there was a couple, an American couple, walking around, and they were on either side. And the man yelled over at, to the woman, and, and he said, it's just more bottles. <laughs> and if, indeed, if you like or care about Mirandi, it is a lot of bottles, you know, with a few other things thrown in. And while I was writing it, however, I took the bottle of Perrier that was on my and I decided to do a kind of phenomenological exercise. And I spent not 10 minutes maybe looking at the bottle. And of course, the first thing to drop out is actually the word bottle. Yeah. That just seems to go away. Uh -huh. And then you start seeing how the light is hitting the bottle and that the light begins to change if you're there for 10 minutes. And there's condensation on the inside of the bottle. And it's like your puddle. Well. Elliot said we can't bear too much reality, right? And a lot of what I try to get my students to do is to bear reality, to actually encounter it, to really look at the bottle now, of course, is absolutely gorgeous. I'm looking at the bottle. We're all looking at the bottle. And it's more light than bottle, you know? Yeah. I mean, what? How did that happen? Um, that, that to actually be wherever we are uh, is to be receptive and curious about what's happening, what's around us is... I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on something. You know that puddle with the paper in the puddle? Yeah. What, did, what was the answer? <laughs> what did it say? <laughs> she didn't go back. We stopped there. We stopped there. You didn't read the answer. Because questions are more interesting than answers. You know what that paper said. <laughs> But of so it, it many. It could be the answer. There's so I know. There's so many, so many stories like that when these kids do these so-called observations, just in the day, that they, they end up seeing things, and it's a great joy. Um, uh, mm. But I also loved what you were saying about that enforced boredom. Mm -hmm. I, I'm like Siri. I can't imagine being bored. Um, it's, there's just so much to do, there's never enough time um, for everything, but I also know that in my periods of most generation, I'm a very slow writer, I've had to, no TV, no Netflix, no computer, no nothing, I mean everything has to be blocked out so there's nothing there to distract me so I'm driven in, you know, driven inward. But you can surely do that being receptive to um, the questions. Mm, always think of Kafka working in that corridor in his house with people passing and or people talking and, and being less, able... He was less permeable than I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that your permeability well, that, is... that has to do a lot with... Yeah. With what? Finish that sentence. Well, um, <laughs> that has to do a lot with... Um, how you create and what you create yeah. and the questions you ask, the permeability of the world, um, of the world filtering through you is obviously of the essence. Uh, I was very struck by a, a poem that you wrote on the death of your brother that seemed to me to um, ask the question of, of the essential questions of love and death um, in, in, in a context that made the, the reader extend those questions into areas that I had not thought about. Hmm. 
What are you? It's just silence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for you to say something, I'm but just, you're just taking just thinking, it in. <laughs> I was just thinking about John, um, my brother, actually. Thank you for bringing him up. I, um, I feel like the, the poems I love are poems that cannot resolve these questions, yeah. um, but embody them. Mm -hmm. And we feel. Yes, it's like that. It's like that, isn't it? We feel that recognition. We don't feel alone. Um, we feel accompanied uh, in our curiosity and in our bewilderment. Um, you know, Emily Dickinson's like that for yeah. me, or you know, uh, so many great poets. Um, you feel, you feel akin. You feel with them, accompanied. I guess. You but know? what's fascinating is a kind of recognition that could not exist without the work of art. Right. In other words, there's lots of dull recognition in the world. I mean, advertisements are doing this all the time. Oh, yeah, I eat cornflakes or whatever. But artistic recognition happens when the artist has made something that, in which you recognize yourself, yeah. but you had that recognition without that work of yeah, art. Exactly. So it's pushed you somewhere else, which also is a generator of more curiosity. You, you mentioned uh, Emily Dickinson, presentiment is that long shadow on the lawn indicative that suns go down, a notice to the startled grass yeah. that darkness is about to pass. Yeah. That we all have felt that, but I wouldn't know about it without Emily it. Dickinson. Yeah, she says it. I know, and you feel, yes, it's like that. Well, I guess it's Eliot again, where he says, you, you arrive somewhere familiar as, and discovering it for the first time. Mm. You know, that, uh -huh. that sense of, yes, it's like that. I've been here before, but I didn't know it. I, what, you, no one said it like that, yes. You know? And then, then we're not alone. Then there's that sensation of, being somebody, but, but also being connected. Yeah, so here's a question. Is there curiosity without some kind of dialogical position in human beings? Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, there, is there curiosity without an other? Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, this is a genuine question, not a question mm. <laughs> that I, I haven't, you know, not rhetorical. Well, uh, can we be without the other yeah, ever? The, no. <laughs> so the, well. I, I think that's right, that, we're, that, that if you're going for essences, then there is never one being without another, and there, you can't have one brain without another. You can't mm. have any of it. See, What's a paradox? Yeah. yeah, which brings me we talked about fear as a mechanism for curiosity but there's also the fear of curiosity sure. which mm -hmm. is uh, and which can be another word for political oppression um, in your book you mentioned you know, it's also um, it's a major theme for in, in religion Absolutely. And, and sure. good curiosity and bad curiosity. Yes. yes, curiosity that is permissible and curiosity that is forbidden. Yeah, and um, I mean, you write about Eve and Pandora. Yeah, here's a quote Which from are, uh, from uh, Ecclesiasticus. It's an apocryphal book of the Bible. Do not try to understand things that are too difficult for you, <laughs> or try to discover what is beyond your powers. Okay, so religion is replete of examples where. Uh, of course, the opposite is true. 
uh, where you're not supposed to be curious. And fear of curiosity is a uh, is political oppression. Is if you know. Uh, political speech and so on. Well, the question yeah. is that: Are we? What about fear of discovering oneself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I, is very common. I, I, I absolutely, can relate. So I'm, I'm thinking about. I always use myself as the instrument of understanding life. So I look back at my own life, and I remember very clearly my body betraying me when I found it was not attracted to women at the age, at a very young age, and I was. I did not understand this at all. There was no, there was no frame of reference. There was no yeah. such thing as gay people in my world. I knew nothing about it. And I just remember the terror of this. And it was unconscious, So I was, it, I, but I knew that fear. And it lasted many, many years. And it shaped so many of my actions yeah. over many years. And it took tremendous courage at a certain point to start being curious about it, to allow myself the curiosity. Yeah. The, and I think there are many ways in which our bodies, it, the body literally wants things that the curious mind can't, can't face, including death. Mm -hmm. You know, one of, one of your, your speak to me, I just feel they hit me in the gut. And the one about your brother saying to you, I'm dying. Yeah. And you, and, he say, and you say, I know. And he says, no, I don't think you do. And you say, I do. I know you're dying. He says, yes, but you don't know that you're dying. It really hit me because that, the being able to accept that. I mean, you know, I've dealt with being gay many years ago, but now I'm having to deal with other things. And what I'm having to deal with is this mortality, which the body knows and which and it's hard to be curious about it. I want to, I notice. Yeah, it's hard to be curious about that. I agree. I also think it increases urgency and curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I turned 60 a couple of weeks ago, and my sense of fitting yeah. it in <laughs> has That's, gotten yeah. enormous. You know, I have much greater urgency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the answer to a question that. It, to do self-discovery and curiosity is there, uh, which uh, as you're speaking, I came up with this uh, analogy, might be completely inappropriate, but I, it seems to me what, what masturbation is to sex is what self-discovery is to curiosity. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so here's uh, an yeah. answer to a question. We don't need, we don't need another to masturbate, we need another to, uh, to, to do this curiosity. We can self-discover. It's true that we can self-discover the um, the Ur question, you know, for people who are interested in infant research, is um, obviously it seems very clear that you can't become a human being without an other, mm -hmm. right? Not just the uterine environment, but then, uh, you know, we'd all be dead if someone hadn't taken care of us. Mm. Uh, and that early uh, life is very important, I think, to what happens to us, to those early rhythmic patterns and yeah. emotional, motor sensory emotional realities that are probably involved also in how curious, how daring, how frightened we all are. Which, because we are constantly confronted to those others who try to tell us who we are, 
the 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 Robert yeah. the quest the the journey is one that Jung calls individuation, trying to find out mm -hmm. who you are in in the end. And uh, uh, Alice is confronted to that in in Wonderland. She has a wonderful solution. She says that she has fallen down the hole and know who she is. And she says, what if I'm somebody that I don't like? So she says, I'll wait here till they call me. And when they call me, I'll ask, who are you calling? And then they will say, and if I like who they're calling, I'll come up. And if, I, if not, I will wait till the, they call the person that I want to be. Um, well, and, and probably okay. this idea of some authentic self, you know, this can be questioned too, right? I mean, that it's a kind of act of becoming. I mean, if, if we are dynamic, then we're never, uh, we're never there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that the idea of individuation is an active one, the one of Absolutely. becoming. Yeah. Absolutely. I keep thinking to what you were saying about Einstein and curiosity not surviving a formal education. And my, my daughter, you know, they were doing a poetry unit and she was, had to write a, a paper, she's 14, on whose woods these are, I think I know, his house is in the village low. And she said, you know, this poem's about, and I said, honey, you know, the poem's not about anything. <laughs> and she said, Mom, I know that, but this is school. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. a wonderful <laughs> So sad, you know? Yeah. She goes, I know, I know, Mom, yeah. but this is school. Yes. Oh. I just, I wanted to write it across. You know what, my daughter? Yeah. Like, you know, stop it. Yeah. Mm. She suffered. But I think that thing of, you know, maybe the love, too, you know, that you fall in love with books or writers, that you have attachments. Yeah. Yeah. And my own daughter, when she was 11, they had to write an essay. She wrote about reading Jane Eyre. And at the end of the essay, she wrote about how she really would like to meet Charlotte Bronte and crawl into her lap and, you know, and, and hug her. Yeah. And it was elected the best essay and she read it aloud and of course the kids were merciless. Why? Well, because they thought it was so tacky that she wanted to sit in Charlotte yeah. Bronte's lap. Because this happens in school. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a very good essay indeed. What a beautiful thing. Charlotte would have loved that. She would have liked it. Yeah. I feel like that many times. <laughs> <laughs> so attachment is somehow connected to curiosity and the feelings, as what you were talking about earlier, these, this feeling of satisfaction, which generates the desire for more satisfaction on that order. One of the places that I'm really interested about how to stay curious is when people have been in relationship for a long time with one another, where they, where they have the illusion that they know one another. And so there's little curiosity. You know exactly what the way things are going to go. And how do you start relating to that person as something, someone becoming, 
someone is not fixed not, or set. Not in every case. No. You can be very curious every day about what is going to happen. My partner says that you have to renew the contract every day um, in order not to wake up in the morning and say, who is this person? So you have to balance the uh, knowledge of the person with a, a curiosity that grows out of a fascination which renews the act of falling in love. Yes. Um, and I find that it, it, it grows. Uh, waking up next to a person and saying, who is this person, is not as dangerous <laughs> as waking up next to a person saying, I know everything about this person. <laughs> oh, I agree. Absolutely. And of course, it has to be a falsehood. Yes. It is impossible to, to, to know, know right. everything. And, you know, and that does create, I think, you know, domestic boredom. Yes. But if you think that, you're lying to yourself. Yeah. Well, well it's yeah. also an act of violence to the other person. It's an act of violence. I, I mean, my, I, my, long, I, my marriage ended when the man I still love very much said to me, I know everything there is to know about you. <laughs> and I said, we can't live together anymore. <laughs> if you think that, you're, that's an act of violence. You can't possibly, you know. Yeah. But Simone Weil, you know, the great yes. theologian philosopher said, the only question we really ever have to ask of each other is, what are you going through? What are you going through? How are you? You know, really, what, what, what are you going through now? What is happening to you? You know, and it, to be deeply curious it is about each other. It is that um, with another person, but also with a group of people, the place where you are not allowed to ask questions, the place that limits your curiosity, uh, is a, a, a place of death. Mm. That is to say, um, Imo Levy tells this very moving story about being in Auschwitz and um, they were standing in their um, uniforms in a very cold uh, wind blowing through the window and they were terribly thirsty and he out of the window and grabs it, breaks it, and starts to suck on the icicle. And the guard hits his hand and hits the icicle out of his hand. And Levy says in his bad German, warum? Why? And the guard's answer is, here is kein warum. Here there is no why. And the place where there is no why it is death. However, there are questions that are uh, completely devoid of curiosity. We, we made them such. I mean, your book has a wonderful question mark even before the title. But you know, you were talking about meeting somebody and asking, what are you going through? We asked the question, how are you? And we practically yes. mean it at <laughs> nothing at all. Of course, 100 years ago, when people asked, how are you? Right, they they, because you, you could be sick and die. Mm -hmm. Today, you can stick and take a pill, and you're, you're fine. Um, of course, uh, some, I come from New Jersey, and in New Jersey, there's a mafia parlance. You can say, how you doing? And the answer I learned for how you doing is, how you doing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't answer, uh, it's a question that is answered by a question, neither of which uh -huh. have any curiosity whatsoever. 
as, a, as, a, what's up? What's up? Or visit, as someone who moved to this country, the, a lot of people say, what's new? Uh -huh. And I, yeah. list, I always take that literally and I start racking my brain <laughs> for something new. And I've realized you just got to come up with one thing. You just have to remember this. Just say one thing. Oh, I'm working on a project. Oh, that's fine. That's all they want to know. The, the Chinese apparently don't say, how are you? But they say, have you eaten? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really? Yes. That's Very important. Point. We should start that. <laughs> have you eaten? Have you eaten? Have you eaten? Yeah. Well, I think we're going to open it up to uh, the audience now, so if you could line up uh, at the microphone and... Uh, do that again, Edgar. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> Share your questions with us. Hi, I'm Sophia, event host from the Brainiacs Meetup Group. I'm also actually building an online knowledge sharing and learning network. So this discussion was really fantastic and interesting. I'm also interested in the role curiosity plays on the interactions between humans. So one would think that if between two equally curious humans, the learning them will be greater than the learning between uh, one curious and one non-curious human. But what if the the pair with the non-curious and curious human, uh, there was a transfer transformation where the non-curious person started becoming curious. <laughs> Would the, that person actually become more curious than the ordinarily curious person? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Edgar, take it away. Oh gosh. The, uh, there's no osmosis. I, absolutely, I think was, uh, curiosity is contagious. I know it myself. Uh, I, yes, I, I, I don't have any children, but I live in a laboratory where I have graduate students. And if it weren't for them, I'll be really a very dull person. So it is a, a being with a curious person can elevate you to becoming curious, no doubt about it. Uh, you definitely surpass your average. Whether you surpass theirs is another question. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Whoops. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciated hearing from everybody. And when I heard about this presentation today, I looked up the etymology of the word curious before I came here. So I'm just curious how you react to this and a question I have. The curious originally comes from the word care. Mm -hmm. And then a curator was somebody who was a guide to providing you with care, how to get to care. And it was connecting to me that the word cure, cure, curiosity, to be cured is connected to that. So my curious question about <laughs> healing and care is that somebody like Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom, written in 1940, he said, Psychologists and psychiatrists have basically replaced priests to guide us to meaning and understanding, how to find yourself, individuation. So when it comes, what I'm curious about, when it comes to education, which is where everything comes from and where probably the greatest crises is today, mm -hmm. that a psychiatrist, including Eric Frum, was saying, psychiatrists, psychologists have a responsibility to take the initiative in bringing meaning and understanding 
out of the little behind the curtain, the mighty eyes have spoken, out into the public with children because you know. And I'm just wondering, my curiosity, what is one step that a psychiatrist or a psychologist or as me as a layperson, what can I do to inspire a psychologist or a psychologist to step out of his little safety box and open up his knowledge to where the community, not just one person, needs it. I'm very curiosity about that. Thank you. Well, um, as, <laughs> as a psychiatrist who's done that, so I have felt very strongly that if I expect people to open up and speak who they are, I need to be willing to do the same. And I've done that in the form of performing my own personal story on a stage. And my personal story is, uh, has got certain pieces to it that are very, obviously very personal. They've, they've been parts of my life that have caused tremendous pain and then tremendous healing. And I have, have along the way met many, many different people who work as therapists who do that, who do it in different forms. So writing about their lives, talking to people about their lives. But I do think it is a willingness to break through the taboo of, of self-disclosure. For me, the whole idea that, we, that I understand very well why, it's, why the therapeutic relationship is for the client. So when sitting in a room, it's not about me speaking my story. But my willingness to do so and my, my having done so, I think, allows me to listen in a way that's very different. So I don't, I don't know how to spread the word of, of people doing that other than saying that it's something I've done and at a cost. It's, it's a very frightening thing to do as a therapist as, and particularly as a psychiatrist, I think. I have felt, I felt humiliated and ashamed at telling my own story publicly because there is a taboo about it. But I think that the idea of caring, my caring for the world and for making a difference in the world is greater than my feeling of shame. And uh, so the, 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 the particular story is so related to your poetry is that I'm HIV positive and I have been for 30 years. And at the time that I became HIV positive, no one was speaking about it and no therapists, no psychiatrist was talking about it. And it, I was watching people dying and you know, your brother was among the, uh, a whole sure. generation of yes. people who died. Yes. And to me, the curiosity about why I didn't will, will never leave. I can't understand why I'm still here, but I do feel like there's a purpose to my still being here, and part of the purpose is to speak about that. Yeah. And I encourage other people to do it. I have a company that teaches people how to tell their stories, their personal stories. And I encourage people to just keep doing that. I think that is a way of changing the world. Thanks. And I just want to say to the person before you, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful to hear young people doing the kind of work that you're doing and creating the, the, the venue for people to do what you're doing. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, my name is Robert. I happen to be a psychiatrist, too. But I guess I wanted to just comment, when I think about the word curiosity, I think of it more in terms of 
something that's not just an ephemeral state. Even an animal might want to know what's behind the door if they smell something. But I like to think of it in terms of, as human beings, where we ask questions like, how did something come to be? How does something work? Or how can it be improved upon? And I think that separates us from the kinds of questions that an animal might have and the way they may use their senses. Uh, at least I'm not familiar with an animal who's asked those questions and somehow demonstrated answers uh, to them. But I think curiosity is a fascinating phenomenon, and I don't think that everybody is equally curious. So I guess, number one, I mean, in terms of how I look at the word, I do like to think in terms of how we work with children and how we work with adults so that, number one, we don't quash curiosity. Yeah. I'm always concerned, not necessarily about how we stimulate it, but what we do to quash it, because I think that's extremely dangerous and that we can create safe spaces in which people can uh, explore their curiosity, give them the freedom to do it. But I just want to add one thing, too, is that for people who may not be uh, terribly concerned about how a refrigerator works, I think each of us is curious about certain <laughs> things. Musicians, artists, poets, uh, all of us have areas of curiosity. Mm. And, and to me, the most important thing is not necessarily that we're curious about everything, but that we find something that we have a passion for. And in working with patients, I'm not so concerned about whether they're curious about my life, but if I can engage them so that they become curious about their own lives and how they can make their own lives better. Thank you. I, I think that addressing uh, what Edgar was saying about not knowing how a fridge works was not that Edgar meant, and excuse me, Edgar, for <laughs> explaining you, that we should uh, uh, be curious only about the mechanical side of life, but that our range of curiosity should uh, spread uh, to things that we do every day and that we don't know that we do every day. So opening a fridge might elicit the question of how does this thing work? It's, it's true, but I have to say I agree with you that people who are passionately you know, addressing certain questions, there's an avenue that you take. And it can lead you out of your frame of reference into something completely new, which for me has been terribly exciting. Um, but that one question generates another, and it might not ever arrive at the refrigerator. And, and it's, it's still OK. <laughs> hmm. OK, so um, I'm terrified right now. Um, and I just want to tell you that so that I can be in my body. Yeah. Mm. Oh, do I take this out? What do yeah. I get? No, I'm okay? All right. Hi, my name is Shulamit. And um, I have a nursing background, so I understand from a scientific perspective. I have a psychotherapy background with psychosynthesis, so um, psychology and spirituality. I'm an energetic healer, an intuitive, an empath, and I love consciousness. And I could go on. I'm a pragmatic metaphysician. Okay, so I just share that as just a little bit of my background but more importantly, and why I'm terrified, is I'm going to be incredibly vulnerable right now. 
and say that there, the reason, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Can I take yeah. this out? I hear you perfectly. Okay. Hello? Yeah. Ah, I feel better. Thank you. If you see this move, I have an essential tremor. I think that's a really sucky word. But anyway, um, it's not fear. So uh, nobody has talked about something I'm going to say. And if they've talked about it and I don't know about it, please let me know and grab me afterwards. But I had an experience of enlightenment where I experienced that I am nothing but that and that that is love and that that is me and that there is nothing but that and that I am all of you and you are all of me and I am the walls and I am the light and I can never die because I don't exist as an ego concept. However... Having had that experience, this is fear. Uh I'm utterly vulnerable right now. Can somebody hold this so I can at least stop this thing? Uh Okay. Coming from an experience, especially for anybody who knows about psychosynthesis, there was something called a spiritual crisis in the literature. And I'm not a reader. I'm a listener. I remember a lot of what I hear, but hardly anything about what I read. Nobody about the disorientation and the disorganization that comes after a spiritual enlightenment. I have been dealing with a discomfort and a struggle in me, knowing that there's a magnificence in me that can come out and share with the universe what happened with me, but also knowing that there's no reason to. Knowing that there's many places I could be and I can go, and knowing that there's nowhere to go knowing that I don't have to worry about death anymore because there is no death, and at the same time, wondering what I'm doing here. Mm. So I came today because I noticed my curiosity was gone, but I didn't know the word. I never thought of the word curiosity. A passion and excitement and exhilaration and expression, yes, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I cried to my husband, there's something wrong. I set up a session on this, in the summer with my psychosynthesis teacher many, many years ago, and he didn't understand. He said, oh, it's because you want to teach from this experience. And I said, no, I'm in my backyard looking at the clouds. I am the clouds. What's wrong? Mm-hmm. And so I started looking for meetups. And I thought, well, maybe if I just experience a bunch of stuff, then something will happen inside me. And I feel so blessed to be here. I feel so divinely led to be here, to find the word curiosity, to excite me enough to come here to say, maybe there's some kind of answer here. And I don't really know what I'm trying to say, except that, There's no place where somebody is not broken. Like, I am utterly not broken. And I help people all the time. But there's a place of uh, being out of skew because we don't talk about the spiritual nature of curiosity. Mm. Like, to me, I've been looking at what is curiosity... And to me, it's about getting out of the way for God to come through. Thank you for thank you. Do you for know sharing. what I'm saying? Yeah. It was very and so I feel you. like we need to have a place well, 
for the spiritual well, issue. Does anyone uh, have some well, thoughts Sheila about that? said the same thing. She, you know, I, yeah. I was thinking of her as you were speaking. Um, do you know her? Do you know that that theologian, philosopher, writer? Her Simone. name is Simone Weil. W e i l. Yeah. She she died um, in the mid mid twentieth century. She, she's written extensively about her experience, about the very thing you're talking about. She calls it decreation, but it's about getting out of the way so God can be. Yeah, um, she, I mean, I think what you're addressing are mystical experiences yeah. that, you know, there, that you share with really a lot of people. And Simone Weil is certainly one of them. Um, but, you know, there are, I mean, there's a whole rich literature on mysticism in many different religions. That's not, what I'm saying is that I was very drawn to Paul and wanting to do a session with you. And, but from the place of spiritual yes. confusion. And I don't think we talk enough about that. Well, maybe I, all, And I don't want to take up the time. No, I, for I understand. I think what's, what's relevant for here, and you can talk to me afterwards, but I think what's relevant here is how you are listened to. Mm -hmm. And so as you speak what you spoke, everybody has a particular frame of reference through which they listen to you. And I think in terms of curiosity, what's really interesting is can we just put aside any frame of reference and hear your experience as what has happened to you. And you know, there is a whole lot of literature about non-ordinary non -ordinary states. So states that people go into that psychiatry tends to call one thing, but that are not necessarily that at all. People do have spiritual crises that can look like ma mania, but they're not, they have, they're different. And I, you know, I certainly through my own experience can relate to what you're saying, but I, th so yeah, perhaps afterwards we can have a conversation. Yes, come, come speak with us. Now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a hard act to follow, obviously, um, but you know, I think what you just did for her was to create a sense of safety, and now we're all thinking about spiritual experiences and how they might really be very interesting, you know, and so I was sort of thinking a lot through this about the word safety. We saw this really beautiful demonstration where you talked about your uh, time in the canyon and two people said, what about food? What about water? And you said, well, okay, yeah, and that was fine. And you settled everybody down and you settled down in your canyon and you had this kind of expansive mystical experience, you know. And I think about animals who come in, they're too terrified, they start to move around, they settle themselves down motorically, right, and then they open up an ability to think and learn once they feel safe enough. And what you guys said about, you know, looking at a bottle in a situation of great safety. So I guess my, my, I don't know if there's a question in here, but the question is sort of the relationship between safety, movement, expansions of consciousness and learning, right? And in what situations are we safe enough to be yeah. curious? And what is the relationship between that and fear? Yeah, and I, I'm just going to tell two anecdotes for fun. But, you know, I have a daughter who's perhaps the most curious person in the world that I know. And when she was five months, uh, we disappeared to take care of a neighbor's fire. And she was curious enough to get off the bed, figure out five turns, and end up 
almost at a staircase at age five months, and she's somebody who can spend days in a canyon alone. I myself, you know, can't watch a movie unless I know the ending before I start watching it. So it's like within these sort of safe or risk environments, there's this play of curiosity. So I was curious about your comments about that. Yeah. I, don't, I, I think safety is important. And I mean, you mentioned animals, but also children. You know, if children aren't given a safe environment, questions are not asked. I mean, you, you know that. You look at traumatized children. Yes. Uh, trauma is a, a form of rigidity, right? and um, motor sensory repetitions as in flashbacks, which I had after a car accident. I'm almost grateful that I had them because it was so fantastically interesting to experience that kind of bodily trauma without any text, no language, nothing. And, um, and to realize that I went into shock and what was missing from the experience was precisely the trauma that then repeats itself later. I mean, I was a grown-up, but I think you absolutely, in education, I mean, all of us, many of us in school, I mean, I went to horrible little public schools in Minnesota where you were terrified in the classroom half the time. This and does not help. <laughs> no, and you're too afraid to ask questions. So, yes, safety is a huge issue, I think. <laughs> One more thing. The other thing I was curious is actually the role of repetition, right? Because I, I can yeah. be, you know, endlessly, repetitively interested in hiking the same nature trail and seeing it anew every time. Yeah. I, you know, and I can be endlessly, repetitively interested in the same piano piece. So, what is the balance of those two things, versus the sort of traumatic, repetitive, mm -hmm. you know? That's a great question. Yeah. Thank you. have a, a quick question about um, dissonance and dissonance as a cause for curiosity. Um, you know, when something like the past, present, or future doesn't align with your projection of the past, present, or future, I mean, I feel like that's kind of a huge cause for curiosity that kind of encompasses a lot of uh, what you've said. So about the, the idea of possibility and imagination as a product of the curiosity to kind of deal with that dissonance. You know, you create this, this uh, imagined world based on possibility rather than what is or what isn't. Um, I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious to know what you guys think about dissonance as, as a cause for curiosity. Can you say a little bit more about that? Why that occurs to you? What, what, in what context? Yeah. Um, as far as... As yeah, far like as dissonance? An example. Yeah, give us an example. When you say um, past, present, future, dissonance, how do you experience sure, that? Sure, sure. Um, well, okay, so uh, maybe an example, maybe through art, we can use an example in music. Uh, you listen to music and, you know, a lot of great composers have, have used dissonance as... Oh, am I too far? Sorry. As, uh, have used dissonance as a, a, a technique or tool to keep the interest of the audience yeah. in a piece. Um, for example, well, I, I don't have an exact example, but you know, using really strong major chords that are really comfortable and then putting a piece of dissonance inside of that to really discomfort the audience and then having that draw them into that piece. Um, I don't know, I think that's probably the best example, but uh, to go with the past and present, future, just um, so if you think of something in the past um, and it doesn't align with something that you have 
that is happening right now. You know, so let's say, I don't know, I, I, uh, I don't know, I'm, sorry, I'm struggling for examples right now, but, um, or like future-wise, you know, you have this idea of the future of where you're going to go, and your future ends up being vastly different. It causes like a, a very strong dissonance within yourself that causes you to say, hey, why, why has this yeah. occurred? Right. What's, what's the reason? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm very you asked that question because I, I wanted to uh, have an appendix, so to speak, to a serious question. Uh, the previous question was, uh, is safety necessary for curiosity? And Siri, I think, very rightfully, in my opinion, uh, answered this. You need a safety environment to explore. But I think by the same amount, you need to pull that safety uh, net out a bit, quite a bit, which is what you call the, dis uh, the danger yeah. of dissonance, yeah. for there to be curiosity, which relates to the major theme of fear that we kept referring to. Right. So I think completely yes. safe environment um, is not conducive for, for curiosity. Uh, but you need amount, some amount of safety not to worry about exploring. But if you put, if you, uh, so dissonance, I'm glad you brought this up because I was yeah. itching to tell Siri, yeah. you need some fear. Well, of course, but th fear. this is a kind of de developmental trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a one-year-old needs a lot more safety exactly. than yes. a 30-year-old. Yes. And if you, the fact is that children who have had safe early lives are more curious and more exploratory. And, you know, there's even research on this that, you know, if you do these studies on, you know, the maternal infant dyad at, you know, two months, you can actually project, depending on how those mm. proto-dialogues are going, that at 18 months, if you have had a good, secure attachment, that that's going to help you be a lot more exploratory and curious in the future. You know, go back so to the cat. A, the cat yeah. uh, was uh, threatened by the new object is curious until it discovers it's safe, then it's not curious anymore. So it makes me think if curiosity kills the cat, it's, it's the lack of, uh, it's, it's the safety that can kill the lack of curiosity of the cat. Yeah. So, yes. so in yes. some way you need both. You need and, both, and I, the dissonance is a kind of beautiful idea, and I like that you talked about, uh, about music, um, because art in general, I think, there's no excitement without dissonance. I mean, right. nobody wants the, well, may, some people do, but you know, the formulaic uh, reproductions of, of artworks that go on all the time, and I think they provide comfort. But if you're really looking for artistic experience, you're looking precisely for that kind of dissonance that's gonna get you all riled up and, and curious and move you elsewhere. I think the same is true of being a therapist. Yeah. So I think yeah. that as a therapist, people have dominant narratives about their lives, and they, they could keep, there's no dissonance to those narratives, they just are. And they've got lots of evidence as to why life is that way. And you could think of a therapist as someone who's listening for the dissonance. They're listening for something other than the dominant narrative, what some people call the subjugated narratives, which are tiny little pieces of narratives that may show through for just a moment. So someone thinks they're a terrible mother and they've got a whole lot of reasons for saying that. And you hear an action that they took which really contradicts that. And your job is to really grab onto that and start thickening that narrative. And so you get dissonance. You get two stories now. Yes. 
piques the curiosity of, of both people. Yeah, but I'm also thinking about us as a national entity or a global entity as well. Did you, anybody here see after the events of 9-11, as we call them now, um, the Andre Gregory and Wally Shawn dialogue at Cooper Union? Um, well, one of them played the United States and one of them played the therapist. <laughs> and um, they were trying to explain to the United States, said, somebody hurt me. Why? I'm mad. Right. And the other person said, well, maybe you could ask yourself some questions. <laughs> you know, good. why would somebody want to hurt you? And this, this dialogue, when it was brilliant, just brilliant, but I'm thinking of the dissonance between, for example, what we thought the world was and what we are now knowing what it is. Like even, even in the, the, um, the climate crisis, you know? And how what's needed now is a deep imaginative response, um, imaginative response that we seem, many of us, paralyzed and un unable to provide. And um, that we keep imagining um, the absolute destruction of the world and over again, and all the Hollywood movies, how many times has New York been destroyed? Uh, you know, flooded, you know, a million, we see that, we can picture that, but we can't picture, you know, grass on all the roofs and windmills and, you know, right. a, new, a new kind of life. And what, what I beg you to do um, is to do that, is for us all to begin to be curious about the future in an imaginative way that creates a future. This is what Blake would say, right? That we imagine it, it will come true. What we choose to imagine about the future often does come true. And we keep, we're being pulled toward Thanatos, Thanatos, death, destruction over and over again, instead of imagining a whole new breakthrough. Resonance now of understanding who we thought we were, what we in fact have done, and now what can we can do about it? You know? Thank you. And uh, there are four of you to ask questions that will have to be the, the last four questions. Okay, so can you hear me? No. 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 Just pick it just, up. Just take it, put it close to your mouth. Okay. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, so I'll try to make this not too nebulous. Um, I feel I may also be the clouds as well. <laughs> um, uh, so one thing is, I, as, I, as I'm listening to this wonderful conversation, I'm um, sort of attuned to the distinction between the kinds of questions being asked when one refers to curiosity and sort of this, this distinction between, you know, the what and the how and the why and this idea of, you know, at, you know, even... At, at the point of, of, you know, when we first emerge into the world, we are, we are primarily concerned with the question of what, and then, you know, as, as we progress, as we gain levels of comfort um, and, you know, and, and moments of, of peace and, 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 you know, or, or we are acted upon by outside forces to force us to, to ask a question of, of how and why um, that it's... Um, you know that the the how and the why is not a necessity, but that it doesn't the the what is not not curiosity and just this 
What I'm interested in is this function of sort of the inattentional blindness with which we go through our lives, this, this hyper-focus on the what, which, you know, or, or the necessity of focusing on the what, um, which, you know, perhaps precludes our, our asking of, of, you know, the, the perhaps more incisive gradations of, of you know, what is possible when, when one manifests curiosity. Um, so, and, and as, as an extension of that, I'm curious to hear what all of you think of this relationship um, of, of, this, of these different kinds of, of manifestations of curiosity in a modern environment in which information and the the ability to, to ask those other questions, more complicated questions, is, is almost prohibitively overwhelming. Mm. This, this idea of information being so incredibly accessible is that, you know, do you believe that in a way that manifests as a kind of micro, uh, macrocosm of inattentional blindness insofar as it is so possible for us to so readily access or, or to seek answers to those greater questions that perhaps we don't. And also, as an extension of that, the, the fact that it is possible for us to ask those questions in such a disembodied way and how we, there's been so much discussion about the, you know, the acute importance of, um, you know, the, at least the you know, if not the actual manifestation of an other, at least the, the, you know, conception of an other, that what, what consequences you believe, you know, the having those questions answered by non, sort of a non-human disembodied force, what implications that has for the connection that we have to each other? Thank you. Yeah. Let's yeah, see. Uh, you know, I think we shouldn't undervalue what it means to pose a good question. I mean, this is a huge thing. In her 1907 diary, Simone de Beauvoir writes, I know nothing, nothing, nothing. I don't even know how to begin to shape a proper question. I mean, the life of the intellect is not about, you know, looking up when someone was born. We can all do that. And, you know, thank heaven for Google. I love to check that I have my date right. But that's not shaping a question. That's not part of, <laughs> of you know, shaping a good question is one hell of a job. Mm. And whether you get your eventually find some part of your answer on the internet or at a lecture or out of, you know, 500 different volumes. I really, I mean, I'm with you on this one. It's how to make the question. And how it's not about question. facts. How to form a really question. good question. On, on a much lighter note, uh, as you were saying this, I'm, I'm imagining this cartoon that I'm going to submit to the New Yorker right after this session. It's so going back to New Jersey, imagine this bar full of wise guys, and then another wi uh, one wise guy comes in, and the caption, 
it's an, it's an, he's an ex existentially minded uh, wise guy. Instead of saying, well, how you doing? He'll ask, why are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing? Well, that's a Why are you doing? Actually, I think that's the interesting thing. We have to allow. It, you can you can come up afterwards and um, ask your follow-ups. I'm sorry, it's just in the interest of time. We, we go forward with the other questions. I got up uh, uh, in response to. Uh, the woman who asked about the relationship between safety and curiosity. Uh, and I wanted to uh, say a couple things about that and maybe pose a question. Though my question at the moment is less important, uh, I'm afraid. Namely that uh, you all touched in the discussion on the relationship between curiosity and pleasure and curiosity and fear. And it does seem to me that both have to be present in every movement of curiosity that takes you toward the world. Uh, an adventure, after all, is a mixture of both excitement and anxiety. You don't get one without the other. And a big question uh, for a psychotherapist of, I belong to that bizarre clan, uh, is how much anxiety can a person tolerate that enables them to move toward the world and to be curious. I've never been in the business of eliminating all anxiety because anxiety has good energy in it and it can be transformed and it's a shame to medicate it or therapize it out of existence or try to. You can't. It's in the human palette of, of feelings. But the thing is that you do need to feel safe enough, which means supported enough, both self-supporting and supported by the environment, in order to risk going toward the unknown, which is where curiosity takes you. Uh, in, in relation to that, I wanted to just say a, a, an, another comment, which is, um, I think that uh, most of uh, the patients that have come to see me over the years have come in exactly feeling not at home. Not at home in the world, not at home in themselves, and maybe particularly not at home in the present moment, so that they live more or less in the past or more or less in the future. And part of that, being able to make oneself at home, is being able to domesticate some unknown experience through going to it with curiosity. And it's not only the depressed patients who are not curious, and they're profoundly not curious about the world because they've disconnected from it, yeah. but also the repressed patients and the oppressed patients. And then curiosity can get broken and distorted yeah. in some very specific ways. For example, a person that we might think of as paranoid is someone who can only be curious about the dangerous and threatening aspects of an experience, uh, of, a, of a coming experience, and not the uh, pleasurable or joyful or, uh, or even safe-making ones. Somebody who is uh, obsessive can only be curious in a way about what they already know, and they're endlessly curious about what they already know, but they can't go toward 
or the unknown. So I just Thank wanted you. to Thank paint you. that little Thank picture. You. One more. Next uh, question, comment. Um, so I, I was kind of reminded with some insight that I had when I was skiing. I, uh, I used to go skiing a lot, and uh, when I would be going downhill, I found that if I was going too fast, I felt out of control and, and scared. And if I was going too slow, it became kind of boring. <laughs> and uh, so finding that middle place where I was kind of like skiing at the edge of my ability mm. was a place that was very satisfying for me. It, it kept me aroused and, and energized and testing my ability, but at the same time, not so out of control that I started to be fearful for my safety, running into a tree or something like that. And, you know, with time, I've kind of learned a little bit about the brain and... and uh, it seems that, you know, that, that slower state, you know, that boring state, kind of like living in that habit system and doing the, the stuff where expectations equals outcomes. You know, and then suddenly when you get to dissonance, like in the music or, or dissonance, you know, um, if you, you have a little dissonance, it triggers your access to the prefrontal cortex and you start to do a kind of a pattern optimization where, you know, in terms of the predictive mind, you're starting to develop, you're developing a model, you're pushing your model, but you're pushing it just enough, just a little bit, so that, that you are creating something that, that leads to something, you becoming more effective. Mm -hmm. But then you get to a point where you, you may, uh, like in a traumatic experience, where you have an experience which is so outside of the yeah. usual, so outside of expectation, that it actually becomes a disintegration. It actually starts to trigger a bottom-up reactive process yeah. that does not engage the prefrontal cortex, and therefore it doesn't lead to pattern optimization, and this is what happens with the traumatic victims or individuals who, uh, through chronic uh, suppression or neglect or, or living in unsafe situations, never get to that point where they can start to access the prefrontal cortex and, and improve their models and, and become more effective. And so as long as you can keep that, that process going, that integration, then you're, you maintain a, a healthy curiosity, which I think is probably you know, critical for human organisms who come into the world without, you know, more mm. like a tabula rasa than, than other organisms. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there. Um, I want to start by saying thank you very much for your time today. Um, it's been fascinating hearing each of your perspectives on this, and I'm very much forward to looking forward to reading your book. Um, my question is regarding discrepancy in curiosity across the general population. And I'm wondering um, if you think that that is attributed mainly to bio biological reasons, for instance, the genetic makeup or wiring of each of our brains, or if you think it's based more on experiential things that um, were referenced earlier, such as safety and the type of environments we are brought up in. I have very strong feelings about this. <laughs> My very strong feelings are that um, we have to start 
rethinking biology, right? So biology includes, of course, genetic makeup, uh, uh, genetic predispositions for disease and probably personality and many things, but that biology is also learning to read as a biological process as well as a cultural one. So really making those distinctions are almost impossible. And if you talk to people working in molecular biology and really working on genetics, it just doesn't go. Um, they're both clearly involved in, in, what, in what happens to us. And you know there are even studies now that seem to suggest that, for example, stress, this is all animals, but stress on animals, of course, will not change your DNA, but it can change parts of, it can make molecular changes. One of them is called methylation. And those changes, it seems, can actually be inherited up to four generations. This is very interesting work. So that here is a little place in molecular genetics where this is coming together. They need a lot more repetitions to make this clear, hard science. But. When it comes to curiosity, however, there is, I think there are um, an innate capability that's in all of us that's much more so than, for example, analytical power. I have graduate students, some of them are incredibly brilliant, and some of them have uncanny analytical power. And I don't buy the argument that if you, um, you know, you can take anybody uh, make them be as analytical as that person. There's something innate, genetic, or yeah, what have you. Sure. However, curiosity is a bit different. And that goes back to the earliest question about uh, whether curiosity can be contagious, and I really think it is. So you take a mildly curious graduate student, you put him among some terribly curious ones, and suddenly she becomes curious. Yeah. And that doesn't happen with intelligence. So I've noticed that, and I just want to bring it up. There is. Well, I think I think nothing dem demonstrates uh, the uh, the correctness of your thesis more than the experience that I think the audience has had today, thanks to our participants and particularly Alberto for stirring our curiosity. Thank you so much. Thank you.